Coming up on Thursday, okay? Um, and I want to talk about Parsha's bow that we just passed and the combination of the two. Um, and I think this is, this is a new outlook because, uh, you know, Tubishvat has a certain image in our heads and uh, at every stage in life, you know, we have to sort of deepen our understanding and our sophistication of, of the meaning of different aspects of Yiddishkeit. And uh, I think this is a good place to, uh, to start. You know, the uh, Parsha's bow, Parsha's bow is a mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. We read that two days ago. Yeah? Now, Rosh Chodesh, Shvat, I was in Eretz Yisrael, davening Vasikna the Koto. And uh, it was a big sklus. Something hit me. It wasn't my own realization, but, but that particular occasion of being at the Kotel davening on Rosh Chodesh, in Eretz Yisrael, in Yerushalayim, means something more than you might automatically attribute it like any other uh, Rosh Chodesh the rest of the year in any other place. That is, you know, the, uh, the Ramam says something wild. The Ram says that there is, if I ask you how many principles of faith there are, can you tell me? Thirteen. Thirteen. Who wrote the thirteen? The Rambam himself, right? The Rambam. The Rambam, okay? He was the one who distilled it to a list of 13 items on Imam, okay? Nevertheless, in Sefer Mitzvah, when he discusses the Mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh, he says there's actually another. Okay, he doesn't say an imam in da ta ta. Okay, that formulation indeed came at a later point. Um, but he says there's a yesod of emuna that a person has to believe in. I'll tell you why in a second why you have to believe in it. But he says the yesod of emuna is that there will always be Jewish presence, Jewish life, Jewish people living in Israel at every point in history. Okay, that sounds like, you know, a Zionistic uh, statement, and that's and it's wonderful. But that's not that's not what's driving the Rambam. The Rambam is not talking about any political, uh, you know, uh, uh, position or or even any uh, you know dream for uh, for the return to uh, to our homeland. That's not what he's talking about. The Rambam is saying he deals with the following question. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question, and you can tell me what the answer is because you know the one answer that every kid has been taught since they're little, and you just didn't know that the Rambam disagrees with it. Okay, um, so we're just going to say that everyone here follows the opinion of the Ramban. And, uh, and all those who, uh, who subscribe to Ramban's opinion, they say, thank you so much for coming to help out. The Ramban says, why is it that we have Rosh Chodesh nowadays? Why is it that we have Yantav nowadays following a calendar? Because we used, to ha- we used to have, of course, the witnesses who came to the Sanhedrin and they testified about what was seen in the sky. Yeah, they saw the, the new moon. They came and told the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin declared the month uh, to begin, correct? Yes, this is old information for everybody. So what do we do nowadays when we don't have a Sanhedrin? We have a fixed calendar. Hillel, a man by the name of Hillel, not the Hill Hazakin, the, you know, of Hillel and Shammai, but a descendant of his, he established a calendar that basically will continue until Mashiach comes, and we can open up a book and see when's Rosh Chodesh, when's Yant. Okay, that's what everyone is taught when they're little. The Ramam says that is incorrect. The Ramam denies the whole thing. And he says that we don't operate with a fixed calendar. Rather, there is a notion of halacha Moshe Sinai, of alternating months, 30, 29, 30, 29, and so forth. But this is the key. He says there, there is still no declaration of Rosh Chodesh in the way that the Ramban holds. Ramban says Hillel, 1,500, 1,600 years ago or something like that, declared in in uh, going forward, I, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but he, he declared in advance 
the Rosh Chodesh days. Okay? He said, I don't need a Sanhedrin every month because I'm taking care of it right now. That's basically what the Ramban says. The Ramban says, no. Every Rosh Chodesh, and by extension, all the Yom Tovim that are dictated by the Rosh Chodesh, are declared in real time by the power vested in the Jews living in Israel. When they behave as if it is Rosh Chodesh, that is what sanctifies the month. You can tell me, what do you mean? How do we go from Sanhedrin down to Joe Schmo, you know, uh, the, the people living in Israel? So, That's why you, you declare the Molad, right? So, so could be right. our practice of Mevor HaMachodesh, right. right? And what, what do we always announce? When the Molad is going to be in Yishalayim, right? What, what do I care? I need to know when the Rosh Chodesh is in, in New York so I can say Yal Yavo. No, we're, we're making a declaration about what is happening in Eretz Yisrael, in Yerushalayim, because that is where everything, everything matters. Okay? Now, what's that? So, what's this? So, so, I understand. How do we go from the Sanhedrin down to the little people? Right? So, Salvation explained beautifully. The Sanhedrin has many functions. The little people, like, the, the little people were the ones who came and testified. Correct. But, but if they had no one to testify to... Right? If you didn't have the head of the basin saying, Makudish, Makudish, right? Okay, so we lost one bar. Why do you say, like, go to so the listen, other bar? So listen, 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 listen. Oh, no, because those little people testifying were testifying to the court that has the power to make that declaration, right? right? The, the, you can have functionaries, but it doesn't mean that the power vested in you is, you know. Oh, but, but, except Akiva is, is, is a few steps ahead. Listen to this, Aaron. We have in American government, we have checks and balances, we have different branches of government, right? And each one has a different function, right? So if I would tell you the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court, right? So you say, oh, that's the judicial branch, right? Um, who declares war in the United States of America? Congress. Congress, okay? So that is part of the legislative branch, right? Right? They're not, they're not the Supreme Court. Supreme Court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, is the one who's in charge of declaring war. Okay, which means that the Sanhedrin, in addition to having its judiciary functions, also has legislative functions. But not because, you know, if, if you would tell me, oh, Congress can declare war. Why? Because Congress has some sort of, like, superpower? No. What, what is it that gives Congress the ability to declare war? They are our elected officials. They're representing what they believe their constituents, uh, you know, would want. And therefore, also when you think about it, it sounds a little bit strange in the formulation, but who really declares war? The American population. Thank you, Donald Trump. Okay, the American the American people are the ones uh, declaring war. In theory, right? We just have representative. Exactly. So too, sometimes our boss. We need to break down. We don't have Congress in Judaism, but it means that sometimes the Sanhedrin is functioning as Supreme Court. Sometimes Cong- uh, uh, Sanhedrin is functioning as the representatives of the people. Nafkamina, Rabosai. Nafkamina. What? And therefore, what? And therefore listen, not, not When you don't have a Sanhedrin, when you don't have a Sanhedrin, can a bunch of us get together and make a new Dindarabanan? No. But when there's no Sanhedrin, can we can we perform the functions that the Sanhedrin was performing as a representative body? Yes. So, so we are the ones declaring Rosh Chodesh. You know why? Because even when there was a Sanhedrin, we were the people declaring Rosh Chodesh. Just happens to be that they were the ones declaring Rosh Chodesh for us. Okay? There was a system. There was a system. I don't know. For me, like right now, I'm not understanding how we... Even though, look, in some countries, uh, you know, the legislative body comes from an electoral college. You know, there's, there's different, there's different uh, you know, political systems. So in Sanhedrin... It doesn't matter how you get to that point. The point is, when you perform a certain function, where is your right to do so coming from? Is it coming from the Supreme Court function, or is it coming from power to the people? 
Okay, yes, sir. There's no difference Because according to the Ramban, someone 16, 1700 years ago made a declaration that every Rosh Chodesh, as it comes, is holy. But according to the Rambam, when you daven in Eretz Yisrael, when I daven in Eretz Yisrael on Rosh Chodesh morning in Yerushalayim, I am part of the process in real time of Rosh Chodesh uh, com- coming into reality. Okay? So what that means is, both sides, that's example number one. Just take a second, a second to reflect. Okay? What that tells you is, life in Eretz Yisrael is so much more consequential because you are actually living, you're living the process. You are part of the process. Number two, two Bishvat, coming up this Thursday, okay? Just, just try to illustrate this a little bit. I need a couple minutes, okay? For the sake of developing the idea. Rabosai, what brach do you make on french fries? Borei priha. Okay, what brach do you make on, on a slice of bread? Why? How come you don't say borei priha aretz, right? Those words are pretty much interchangeable. Adam and art, right? What's the difference? So listen to this, Rabosai. This is wild. Aretz means different things. Okay, sometimes you have Shemayim Aretz, right? Sometimes Aretz just means like not the heavens, right? So you can have Eretz Mitzrayim, right? But if you just say Aretz, you mean Eretz Yisrael, right? It's kind of crazy. I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys. Uh, did I mention this on Thursday? With Gil, what, the, the Gil story? When you, when, you, uh, when you come home, okay, to America, so to speak, from, from Israel, Right, so you have now entered in Hebrew in the Hebrew language, and the way we talk about it as Jews, you are now in chutzlars. Right? Isn't that crazy? How egocentric we are. There's there's aretz and there's chutzlars. Right? Exactly, exactly. Right? Like if you're if you're not from New York, you hate it when the New Yorkers just think like there's like you go over George Washington Bridge and it's like one big blur. You know, like yeah, you know, like uh, Silver Spring and uh, and Baltimore. They're like five minutes away from each other. Like no, they're like an hour away. You know, but like. It, there's there's chutzlarts, right? Isn't that wild? Like that's how we talk. But I, I, there's a reason for it. I think that that expresses a a very powerful message in our Yiddishkeit that there is the center of everything, okay? And everything else is just out of the center, out of chutzlarts, okay? That's that's pretty cool if you think about it, right? So, but that that's for real. That's for real. Rabosai, name me the shiva saminim, okay? Or, or, I'll, I'll say better. What's what is your favorite? Thing to eat on Tubishvat. Don't tell me Buxer. It's not okay. It's okay. Not. What is your favorite thing to eat on Tubishvat? Olives. Apricots? Okay. Olives. Olives? Pizza. Pizza's my favorite. You know why? You know why? Yeah. Since when is wheat not one of the sinners I mean them? Why can't I have a cookie? Why can't I have a sandwich? A burger? You know, like, like okay, great. You know, Rimonim, Zaytim, Anavim. But like, you know, like, give me like some, something I can, I can make a multi on. You're right. You're right. Is that, who says that's to be vegetables? Chita and so are all five, all five categories of grain are derivatives of the Shiva Saminim. Okay? Because wheat and barley, they have subsidiaries, but they're all, they're all grain. Okay? So next time at your Tupishvat Seder, make sure you have a cookie or something. Okay? But wh- why are we making a big deal about that? Based on the Vilnagon, Hamotzi Lacham Min Haaretz versus Borpri Adama. Please listen. A potato that you make a bird put adama on can go and can grow anywhere in the world, okay? And it's adama, it's ground, it's earth. Bread, hamotzilechem okay. haaretz, because by definition it is one of the seven species. You don't make hamotzi on anything other than seven species, okay? The is a little bit cabalistic, okay? And I can't give you a biological, natural explanation. I don't know where Marathi is, but 
every wheat kernel, every wheat crop in the world derives its sustenance rooted in the growth of Eretz Yisrael. The Shivas Haminim, Hamotzi Lacha Min, not Adama, because Adama is just generic, it's anywhere. Hamotzi Lacha Min Haaretz, because there's a unique connection to that challah you're eating or whatever you're having that connects you back. The growth is sustained by the growth of those Minim in Eretz Yisrael. When you. Correct. Not the potatoes. Not the potatoes. Isn't that idea full with everything potatoes too? Because it didn't govern like plant every species because he knew exactly where the whatever so to speak lines of energy were. Interesting. You have, you have to show it to me. You have to show it to me. There is a Ramban. The Ramban says, I'll pick up all he says. There's, he says this is Kabbalistic. He says, if you look in the art scroll, the art scroll doesn't bother translating it because they say it's too, too esoteric. But the Ramban says there is something which may be more expansive than just the Shivas Haminim. It says, Eretz Yisrael is the land that Hashem is always Dorish Osatamin. He's looking at Eretz Yisrael first and foremost, more than any other part of the world. And what that means is that the, the growth and the sustenance derives from Eretz Yisrael more prominently. And then as an outgrowth to the rest of the world uh, is impacted. Okay? Okay? You follow? So there may, but there's some more concentrated aspect of the Shifas Haminim. That that, uh, that where it's it's like on steroids. Okay, it's, uh, I don't know where you draw the line, but it's an, an elevated status. The naf community between the Muslim and Arts and Bird Pyramid is that one is Shiva Samin and the other one's not. Okay, so it's more directly connected. Yeah. I didn't take ten. I didn't take ten. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. No, it's not. The Ram doesn't say anything about molid. What Rami mentioned before about the molid is it's a minhug just to sort of recognize that idea. The molid that we announced, you're a hundred percent correct, is not accurate. It's based on a an average calculation. Okay? You're, you're correct. But the Ram doesn't speak about molid at all. That's something we added. Chavra, let's give you a few more minutes. Okay? So the, 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 the key over here is that we have now two, ex, uh, two examples of where Eretz Yisrael is the center of halacha. Eretz Yisrael is the center of where, where our own physical, natural reality stems from. I was thinking about this, this week's Parsha, because of another unique connection between Parsha's bow and Tubishvat. Parsha's bow is, of course, it concludes with the, uh, the mitzvah of, t- of Tzfilin. Two out of the four Parshas in your Tzfilin come from the end of Parsha's bow. Has anyone ever heard the story of the Maidanic Tefillin? Maidanic Tefillin. Ramosha Weinberger. I, I hope everyone here knows Ramosha Weinberger. Yeah, Mashpia. Mashpia. H. Kodesh. So his father is actually, is actually, what? This is actually a, a Hillcrest story. Ramosha Weinberger grew up in Hillcrest. Okay? You know that? You didn't know that? Okay. So his father was a Holocaust survivor. His name was Mr. Martin Weinberger. He died every morning at the Young Israel. Uh, till he was, I don't know, close to 100. His yurtzeit is Tubishvat. He died about three years ago. He grew up in Hungary. Amazing story. Please listen to this. When the Nazis took over Hungary, so any able-bodied young men, and he was, you know, he was maybe 18, 19 at the time, they were either shipped off to, to fight or they were sent to labor camps. And as was so often the case in places where the Nazis took over, all the men had to go on this treacherous, long, freezing cold March, that so many of them didn't even survive. And uh, when Weinberger was eight, okay, when he was a kid, so his father told him a story about this and how he remembers it was a Friday night and the tzaddikim 
amongst the crowd who were marching. They were singing Kabbalah Shabbos, and it was the most beautiful, holy thing, as if nothing was going on. In the freezing rain and, and everything else that they were subjected to, they were singing like it was Mamish, you know, Karbach at the Kotel. And eight years old, Rav Weinberger said to him, like, so what did that do for them? Like, they all died anyway. Right? Like, like the, 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 he said the thing that you've all been taught not to respond. You know, like the, the knee-jerk reaction of what would be an insensitive, inappropriate. But he was eight years old. He asked it innocently. And he said, you know, like, I, like, I just didn't understand. Like, okay, that sounds like a wonderful picture, but like, but, but did Hashem notice? Like, you know, like, what happened? Mr. Weinberger, his father, wisely didn't respond at the time. Five years later at his bar mitzvah, Weinberger was given a brand new pair of tefillin, as well as his father gave him his own set of tefillin. He said, I want you to put it on once on David bar mitzvah. And I'll tell you the story of these tefillin. So on that day, when I was marched out of my hometown, Ungavar, my parents said goodbye to me because they figured, as they were correct, that there was the last time I would see them. And my father told me, make sure you wear these tefillin no matter what. That's how you're going to stay connected no matter what happens. And he wrapped them around his body, and he hid them in the labor camps, and, and they survived. He ultimately went to concentration camps, and he was hiding them under the bed, and they used to wake up half an hour early before the roll call. People would line up outside the barracks before they turned to wear the tefillin. This was like a very whole – this was, became known as the Maidanic – Maidanic was one of the concentration camps. Maidanic tefillin. Until one day, all the people in the concentration camp were, were uh, awoken to screams the Nazis – Early, early in the morning, there was some sort of like lice infestation, but not like 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 big lice, like jukim, you know, like huge, huge insects. And the Nazis said the only way we can deal with it is to literally burn every last fiber of anything that's you know in the camp. So they all take off their clothes, any possessions, whatever they had, they had to put in a big pile. So Weinberger's father knew that this was it. You know, like if they catch me with the tefillin, if I try to hide it, I'm gonna get shot on the spot. So, you know, but this was his promise to his father, but what could he do? He had to save his life. So he wrapped it up in a little little cloth, put it on top of the pile of things that they were about to burn, and he couldn't watch it, walked away. Came back the next day after all the fire was out, and it was a mound of ashes, and he found the tefillin there perfectly intact, as if nothing happened. As if nothing happened. And Weinberger understood at the time that what his father was telling him was that moment, that little kiss from Shemayim, that didn't make any sense, pure Mamsha miracle right in front of his eyes, was Hashem saying, I don't need the answer to what happened to the tzaddikim singing Kabbalah Shabbos as they marched to their deaths. That, that's irrelevant. HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his plan is so much bigger, even if it's only once in a while he comes out from Shemayim and tells us where exactly this is going. But Hashem is much bigger than any one specific small snapshot of our lives. And our lives are so much smaller than the much bigger plan that we all fit into in history. Postscript, fast forward about 10 years from there, Weinberger, who again has become one of the most influential rabbinim in our communities in the last 20, 30 years, at the time he had just finished college, went to YU, and um, he was signed up for law school because in those days, you know, Mr. Weinberger was uh, was a dry cleaner. You know, he came to America in 1948, built up a little business for himself, but your son is either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, you know? Uh, no offense. But, uh, like, someone came over to him and said, you know, Moish, you'd, you'd make a really good Rebbe. And he never thought about it, because, like, it was just, you could, like, if that's what your parents wanted you to do, like, that's what you were. Like, there was no, like, discussion. And he came to his father, after thinking about it, and he said, Dad, I, uh, I'm going to speak up. I want to be a Rebbe. 
So what was his father's reaction? I can make a living, you know, like, come on, you know, like, you, you can't do that, you're, you're going to law school. And a few minutes later, he was crying, he called in his wife, Paula, I think her name is, she's still alive, she should be, uh, she should be well. And he said to her, Paula, this is why we survived. Moshe's going to Smicha to become a Rebbe, this is why we survived. And that's a picture of a person who realizes that, again, their life is so much more consequential and significant than the small snapshot of like what you know how you make a living you know like but there, there's like the reason I'm here right now the reason I survived all that the reason the film survived all that was to be able to move it forward to something much bigger when I was in Eretz Yisrael thinking about how everything there means so much whether it be Kiddush HaChodesh whether it be the Tu when you speak to people in Eretz Yisrael the people there feel like their lives are so much more consequential than ours. The people there know that they're literally driving history because that centric you know, notion of, of Eretz Israel and Chutz Arts is not just a Jewish thing. The whole world revolves around Israel. That's the reality. Open up the newspaper. That's just the reality. The reason why before October 7th, there was so much fighting and so much conflict and, 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 and heated debates. It's because the people in Eretz Israel know that the decisions that they make there has a much greater impact and consequence than political decisions made anywhere else in the, country, in, in the world. Well, it, it, like, you can't ignore that. And I'll add one more thing on both sides. This is scary. Rutsky once said in the name of, of Rutsalvecher, has anyone ever seen Chatzotros uh, blown in Israel? When I was at Kevin Rachel, whatever, a week ago, two weeks ago, they were blowing chatzotzos, you know, the trumpets, yeah? Torah says, when, you're, when, when someone attacks you, 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 you cry out to Hashem, we fast, and it says you blow chatzotzos. Why we don't do it nowadays, it's a good question. But in Eretz Yisrael, many places they do. Magnum says, you only do it when it's a tzara that's affecting Eretz Yisrael. Salvechik said, listen to this, almost prophetically, but if you ask me, it's the same thing as that Motzi Lachamena artist in the Tubishvat. He said that... The world being centered around Israel is not just political or Zionistic. He says the security of the Jewish people anywhere in the world depends upon the level of security of the Jews in Israel. And I don't need to tell you that if that it's not a coincidence that we're facing attacks as bad as anything since the Holocaust and the anti-Semitism everywhere else in the world is as bad as it's ever been since the Holocaust. So I don't think there's a... a I think that, that helps bring to life what it means that the sustenance of the bread comes, it derives in some way from Eretz Yisrael, our own safety and security. When you live in Eretz Yisrael, please listen, to this is the punchline. When you live in Eretz Yisrael, it's so easy to see that your life matters. It's so easy to see that the gun that you hold in your hands is a holy tool. And your mission as part of Kla Yisrael you really matter because everything in Eretz Yisrael really matters. In America, what matters? What matters? What matters? Sending more money to Israel. The average American, what are they thinking about? It, are they thinking about destiny? In Eretz Yisrael, they're thinking about destiny. In Eretz Yisrael, they're thinking about the long-range purpose of creation and where Eretz Yisrael and the Jewish people are going to fit into that, that picture. The things that we focus on here have the risk of being so small-minded and inconsequential because we only have a narrow picture of the moment. I challenge you, challenge you, as we begin a new Zman, 
to make your goals and your priorities focused and trained on a mindset where my life has to matter. The decisions I make have to matter. Even if I'm not in Eretz Yisrael, and I should want to get there so that it matters all the more so. But the halacha, the hashkafa, and the politics, it all comes back to the same point. That if we're that far away from Eretz Yisrael, it's that much harder to make ourselves convinced that what we need to do has to matter. And I challenge you to make the decisions and to see yourself, especially if you're just coming back from Eretz Yisrael, to, to plot a life for yourself that will matter. Long after you're gone, long after those Hasidim singing Kabbalah Shabbos were gone, they knew that they were part of something much bigger. And that's why they were singing. Our lives have the ability to be a song in that big march of history that is Kalah Yisrael's destiny, not just in Eretz Yisrael, but even in Chutz Eretz as well.